Um, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the uh, 139th Psalm, Psalm 139. And uh, we're going to jump into that in just a moment. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word now, I pray that by the power of the Spirit, you will give us wisdom and insight to see what we haven't seen, to hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that you'll draw near. Lord, always our longing is to have lines that are realigned to you and to your reality. Not living, Lord, with you in the background, but Lord, with you at the center. And I pray, Father, that in this contemplation, this song of praise to you written by David, that our hearts will be changed to see, Lord, that our life centered around you is the only life worth living. In your precious name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I've never before um, attempted to preach on this psalm, um, preached on many, many psalms, and they are all very different in character and flavor, but of all the psalms, I think many would agree that uh, psalm, the 139th psalm is something of an Everest. It's one of the great peaks in the book of psalms, and is one of those psalms that many people turn to uh, for comfort and for reassurance and for reorientation towards God, and I'm sure many of you will be familiar with it when we read it in just a moment. I was reading it not so long back, just a few weeks ago, and as I did so, um, I felt immediately just a strong burden, a sense to um, preach upon it and to open it up to you, not least because I think that this is a psalm for our time, and a psalm that speaks to the day and age in which we live in a very unique and powerful way. And uh, let me just attempt to explain to you why I think that is so. I, as I think about our, the culture in which we live and the conversations that, that I have and um, people that I interact with, one of the things that strikes me is that many, many people in our day and age are living uh, haunted lives, that there are emotions and intuitions and intimations that many struggle to deal with in this particular day and age. I think that we are on the precipice of uh, something of, well, what is ha actually an already unfolding crisis for many when we think about people's emotional and spiritual health. And it's aggravated by many, many um, different and complex emotions. Many feel profound loneliness and isolation even when they're surrounded by people. There is widespread anxiety and lack of peace that people feel in their day-to-day -day lives and often without an ability to particularly discover why or what is causing that as a generalized affliction. There are those who are very aware of a sense of insignificance in a world that is cold and loveless in many ways and a universe beyond that that's, that makes you feel tiny. And I think many people feel what I like to describe as a kind of cosmic insecurity. That without knowing the God over us, we feel a lostness and just like orphans, I suppose, futility in life. That no matter what it is that you're giving yourself and your time to, there can be a sense of the futility, the endless revolving of circumstances and effort and work that never seems to arrive at any desired end and what's it all for in the end anyway given that everything is is going to be destroyed and is is heading towards a ma massive heat death or so we're told 
And then there are the very personal things that people feel. In a day and an age obsessed with beauty, there is a sense of ugliness that many people feel about themselves. And uh, the absence of someone to love you, the longing for love. And this is just a number of the things that are widespread and that afflict many, many people, if not most. Are these emotions ubiquitous? Are they, are they, are they among, does everybody feel like this? I think it's possible that some people are too shallow or too distracted to really contemplate reality and reflect in these kinds of ways. Others are just too young and too naive and too optimistic, and they haven't really met with real suffering yet or the challenges when life crushes, weighs down upon you and crashes on you in a new way. But it seems to me that the vast majority of people are suffering and struggling in all kinds of ways internally, and that therefore, perhaps there is something of an openness to discovering what the problem is and where God fits in, how he may be the solution to that. Unfortunately, many people fail to turn to God. And how do we instead deal with these emotions? I think that people tend to deal with them either through despair or defiance. That there are many who just give way to the reality of feeling this way and therefore live with quiet angst and, and personal suffering in the quiet inner part of your heart. Others therefore find try and find help through medication or counsel or therapy or whatever it is. And some go further than that, of course, and wind up in very dark places and even all the way to, to suicide and ending that kind of darkness and that sense of misery. And others live lives of defiance. In the face of what looks like a futile world, many people seek to find meaning or create or construct meaning for themselves by turning to things like achievement to seeking the adulation and affection of others and the praise of men, or acquisition, trying to just gather as many possessions as possible in the brief life, the fleeting moments that you have here on earth in order to just silence the nagging and gnawing sense of emptiness. And therefore, a psalm like this seems to me to speak right to the heart of these issues. And I want us to read it together now. I'm going to read it all the way through. David writes this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before Lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. How does this psalm speak to these emotions that I've been describing and the reality that many people feel of the emptiness and despair that crashes in on people? I want to show you just very briefly to begin with how the psalm immediately comes in with a number of affirmations, the way that it speaks to you and your preciousness before God. But then I also want to turn to a number of the challenges and the way in which this psalm summons and calls us to a God-centered life. So that's how I plan to approach this and deal with this and open this up. Let's begin then with the affirmations. As I said at the start, I think many people have turned to this particular psalm in moments of darkness because like many parts of the scriptures, God's word can come like a healing balm, like an ointment that brings healing to the wounds and afflictions that we feel in a spiritual sense, in the inside. And this one in particular was written by David. And if you're familiar with the story of David or familiar with the Psalms that he wrote, one of the things that you encounter in this man was a man of profound spiritual sensitivity, of unparalleled self-awareness, and the consciousness of his own life lived before God of extraordinary vulnerability of soul, so that while he was known as, and his major life achievements were as a warrior and a general and a commander-in-chief, a man of war, one of the things that strikes you is that that lives quite happily inside David as man also of um, just extraordinary sensitivity and reality and awareness of spiritual things. And out of that place, as a kind of philosopher-poet, as someone who um, thought on the reality of God and its meaning and implications for day-to-day life, and particularly emotions and spiritual health, we find psalms like this that speak in extraordinary ways to our deepest needs and longings. And this particular psalm is of immense help to many and has been to me personally at moments. The living word of God coming in and bringing healing to the heart in an amazing way. And it does so, I mean, I think we could probably draw out more than these four, but I think there are four affirmations in particular the psalm offers that even on a cursory, rapid, surface-level reading of the psalm, you'll gather these points. And let me just show you what they are. For one thing, it tells you that you are seen. 
He begins and says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and acquainted with all my ways. I think that part of the reason why many people live with the despair that I've been describing is because we live lives of constant jostling to be noticed in a world in which we feel unimportant and small and insignificant. And that fear of invisibility is a deep-rooted source of frustration and anxiety and fear in many people. There was in the news just a couple of weeks ago the tragic story of a woman who had passed away in her flat and was left there undiscovered for more than two years while her body decomposed and there had been some sort of half-hearted attempts to discover where she was and what was going on inside, inside the flat, but no real effort because there was no one there who really cared, no one who knew her, no one who loved her. She was as invisible as you can be. And I think in some ways that story, for me, is a kind of metaphor of the way many people feel that their lives are playing out. Even if you have friends and relationships around you, you can feel as though no one really cares about your existence. David was a man who was familiar, I think, with that awareness of loneliness. In his youth, he had been the runt in the family, the one who was very nearly overlooked when the prophet came to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the king and went through the older brothers and they said, well, there's this other one in the field. No one really cares about him. And so he'd experienced that in the youth and the scorn of his brothers that persists even in the stories that follow that. And then as a man at the peak of his achievements and of his greatness as the king of Israel, he would have known extraordinary isolation and loneliness because that's the nature of leadership, especially this kind of leadership. And he was constantly attacked by others. And therefore, I think David would have known isolation and loneliness like few to experience in life. And it was Therefore, before the face of God that you see this call, this cry, God, you have searched me and known me. You know, you see me in my life. And the affirmation, therefore, has resonated with many that you are a seen person. God sees you. Along with that and accompanying that is the affirmation that you are known. And of course, it comes through very clearly when he says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up and discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And I think this is related to the, the desire to be seen, but has more to do with the longing for intimacy. We are relational creatures and we are born to experience the intimacy of knowing and of being known. We live... I think in an age that is starved of true intimacy. It seems to me that there are many people who in relationships are performing but not truly known for who they are. There's much hypocrisy and little reality and therefore many hollow, hollow relationships. And while I don't think this is the only reason, I think one of the reasons that we see what such kind of sexual, what people call freedom, but what is really just a lack of control and just the obsession with sex in our age 
has to do with this longing for intimacy. There's at least one major root cause that there is a desperate thirst and desire to be known and to be known truly. The Bible says that sexual relations describes them as knowing and being known. It uses that language. And I think that when you look at our society as a whole, you therefore see many people who feel that they are not truly known, perhaps by anybody. And here David expresses the answer to that human longing for intimacy when he says, Lord, you know all of my ways. I think when you understand this penetrating knowledge of God, you realize that he knows you better than you know yourself. Our own hearts can be something of a mystery to us. And as much as we try and articulate and open up to others, even then we might find it difficult to truly express how we feel. What David had encountered in God was not only a God who sees him, but a God who knew him in the most intimate possible way. You're seen and you're known. Along with that is another affirmation, you are loved. He says in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. I think love is a rare commodity to find in its purest form these days. Because love is dependent upon and conditioned upon an unbreakable commitment from a beloved. Covenant promises. The affirmation that I will be with you no matter what. I think historically many people have found that kind of a commitment not only in romantic and erotic love, but also in friendship. And yet I think we live in a day and an age, and of course among family, but we live in a day and an age in which friendships can be like revolving door relationships and in which there is so much fickleness and lack of commitment that means that many people never truly feel like they find their people and therefore feel that they are not truly loved or known. And I think David was a man who understood something of this. I've already mentioned Loneliness, but alongside that was extraordinary rejections that he'd encountered in life. He had experienced rejection from his great mentor and boss, the king, who King Saul, who became murderously angry towards David in an irrational envy. He was rejected by his first fiance, Merah, who ended up marrying another man. And ultimately, towards the end of his life, I think in the the way that probably ripped him up more than anything else he'd ever experienced, though he suffered a lot, he was rejected by one of his own sons who turned on him and tried to take the kingdom from him and very nearly succeeded and drove David into the wilderness, into isolation there. And therefore, here's a man who was betrayed by Almost all of the people who were meant to protect and love him the most. And so it is that I think when you discover the depth of emotion and the reality of a prayer like this, when he says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. This is the heart cry of a man who says, there is only one person in my life who has 
never abandoned me and who is behind and in front of me and whose hand is presence is heavy upon me and is an unbreakable reality in my life. He's saying it's only God. It's only God. And therefore, he knew something of the love of God in this covenant commitment that God had expressed towards him at this very emotional level. And then another affirmation in the psalm, one of the most famous parts of the psalm, of course, is its affirmation that you are special. It says in verse 13, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderfully your works, my soul knows it very well. And I do think that within all of us is a longing, a desire to be unique and to be special and to be noticed. I know that to describe someone as special in this day and age is more of an insult than it is a compliment, very special person. But there is something real, isn't there, in that desire to, to be unique and to be, have something special and unique, praiseworthy about you. And in the face of that longing, I think this is why so much of our self-loathing or self-reproach or self-criticism is profoundly destructive of well-being. And why many people live tortured lives emotionally every day wrestling with these emotions of self-hatred, really. David was a man who, though he had accomplished extraordinary things, and many people often turn to accomplishments as a means of trying to bolster their sense of self. He had accomplished extraordinary things, but it's not to those things that he turns when he wants to be assured of his uniqueness and the specialness of his person, it's rather to the reality of the God who made him, the Father's love. It reminded me of these words of Jesus when he's speaking to his disciples. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for one penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so, in amazing ways, this psalm kind of rolls and washes over us of these affirmations of the love of God and the reality of his presence, that you are loved, that you're seen, that you're special, that you're known, and therefore has spoken to and encouraged many people. And I think these affirmations speak right to the longings and the desperations of the heart of many people in our society right now. But along with these affirmations, I think, are also these challenges. I think in this psalm we find, in one sense, agreement with the voices of our age, but then also disagreement and challenge. And I want to just expose some of these for you. Because so far, everything I've said is not that much different from the things that you might see on any kind of um, uplifting social media feed with those little notes about how, how you're loved and special or, or like the notes that you see, you know, quite honorably motivated, I'm sure, but you see these notes on the bridges in London because they're so often that people will attempt in the, the darkest moments to commit suicide off the bridges in London. People leave notes of affirmation that echo some of these sentiments that I've been saying to you. You're seen, you're known, you're special, these kinds of things. And so in one sense, so far, I've only stated what many people already believe to be true and what you might hear elsewhere. 
Where then does the challenge come in? And what is the unique message of this psalm to us that gives new hope beyond just the kind of almost empty aphorisms that many listen to and, and seek to find comfort in in our age? And I want to say the headline very generally, the great challenge is this, friends, that you can only really believe the things that we've been learning, the affirmations of this psalm. You can only really take them to heart and take them into the deepest part of you when you know God and when you are known by God. Without God, to put it as bluntly as I can, you are not seen. You are not known, not truly, by anybody. You're not loved with an unbreakable love, and you're not special. And therefore, the great assumption, the great premise upon which this psalm is built, that gave strength and help and health to the heart of David and the strength of many people who have meditated upon it and taken it to heart since then, is this. That this is the meditation of a God-centered life. These are the convictions and the truths and the knowledge of someone for whom God is at the center of their existence. And out of that flow a number of other challenges that I want to bring. And here's the first. One is that your worth as a person, as an individual, is not generated from within you, but comes from knowing the God who is outside of you. Now, I stress this because I think there are many today who rightly, intuitively grasp that as humans, we have an inherent worth. We understand this. But they do so without any basis whatsoever. And we have to face facts, don't we? That if we are just the products of chance collisions of atoms over eons of time that somehow gave rise to life and then somehow gave rise to consciousness... And these realities are mere accidents of history. If that is the narrative that you believe, then all of our convictions around the worth of an individual and the rights of an individual and the specialness of an individual are mere empty social constructs. And I think in one sense we are, we are moving in that direction on some levels, with the growing sort of misanthropy or man-hatred, hatred of humanity that is growing in our day and age, where humans are seen as a kind of scourge or a virus on the planet. What right do we have above other creatures is the question, and therefore we ought to limit our population. We ought to perhaps even exercise extraordinary self-denial because I'm not special. And the psalm shows you that your worth as an individual can only be established in relation to God. Every statement that David utters in the psalm is a statement of relationship, the reality of his life lived before God. It comes through in every single line of the psalm. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
This is a profoundly relational expression. And all that sense of worth and inherent dignity that David experiences that builds him up from the inside out is built upon and premised upon a relationship with the God that he knows. And it seems to me that it is only when we are related to the God who is outside of us, who is eternal, who is objective, who is unchanging, the God who is love, that we can really believe in the deepest part of our souls that we as individuals have worth. And therefore, it's something of a mystery, perhaps, why, and I think this is what David comes to as he ponders his own actions in life. Why is it that we run away from God, therefore? You know, he expresses it. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Describes that urge to run away if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me. Why do we run from a God who we most desperately need and crave to know? Your worth is not generated from within, but comes from the God who is outside you. Alongside that is another challenge. Your purpose as an individual does not come from within either, but it comes from the God who made you and constructed you. Now, I think living as we do in an age in which we no longer live with a God awareness, we are groping around to find purpose in life, and purpose is generally discovered by the advice to look inward by finding a me-centered or a man-centered mantra to justify your existence here on earth. And so people say this, do what makes you happy or find your passion in life. And those who really go down that pathway of just trying to discover what it is that they, what their purpose is by looking inwards, if you're reflective and take that path to its end, con its end destination, you quickly realize what a futile existence you're living without God. It's the meditation of David's great son Solomon in the book Ecclesiastes when he kind of describes and depicts the reality of life lived in all of its futility without God in the picture. And he says, and we work and we play and we eat and we do all these things in the great cycle and it's all just meaningless. It's empty, it's futile. Until he comes to that great conclusion, ah, but not when it's lived before God. Where does meaning and purpose come from? It, it cannot come from looking inward, follow your heart type advice that is so easily trotted out. Because where else are we gonna look? It cannot come from just looking at the latest fads and trends and causes of the day and age in which we live because these things are always temporary. They come and go with all the winds of culture and of society. It has to rather come from knowing that you were made by a God who constructed you as an individual for your specific purpose in the life in which he placed you. And this is something David contemplates as he thinks about himself as made by God. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David is not looking at what he has made of himself. Though if anyone had reason to do so, it was him. 
He goes right back to those moments before he'd done anything with his life and builds his sense of purpose and of what he's here for upon how God has made him. He says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you live with that sense of the reality of God having made you and constructed you and designed you for purpose? If you don't know God at all, then you may well be conscious of the question of what your life is all about. And that question will continue to trouble you until your dying day, until you come to meet the God who made you. I think it's also possible, however, as for Christians to live lives in which they fail to connect the reality of the God who is sovereign over every detail of your life with your sense of purpose in the day-to-day and the reality of what you're here to do. And it seems to me that that's a very sad, almost tragic way of living a life. The Christian is someone who is called to live their life before the face of God in constant submission and surrender to his will. Every, he says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Your purpose cannot come from within. It has to come from a relationship with God, an awareness and a reflection upon an obedience to the will of God as he makes it known to you in the study of his word and discipleship to your master Jesus and the leading of the Holy Spirit as he leads you in your day-to-day life. And when you tether yourself to those realities, you discover purpose like no other. It may not be that which is recognized by your peers or by the world around you. In fact, many people may question and misunderstand what you are living for. But it's enough to know that God is pleased and to discover before his face why he made you. And the third challenge is this, that your glory is not the end or aim of your life, but rather the glory of God And I feel this has to be stressed in the day and age in which we live because we are surrounded by the shameless, bare-faced pursuits of the praise of others. It seems to me, I don't know how or when this happened, but we're living in a posing culture of just unabashed vanity, aren't we? In which people are constantly posturing and posing, particularly through the medium of images, but also there's the ostentatious, unembarrassed displays of wealth and of achievement and of attainment and of beauty or of talent. And then just the the lies and the spin that people tell of their own narratives, whether it's through their CVs or their biographies or whatever else it is, social media posts, people are always trying to construct the story of who they are before a watching world in order to gain the praise of others. And I don't know when that became an acceptable thing, when we were no longer ashamed of our pride and our boasting, but it's happened, there's no doubt about that. 
But here's a man who is contemplating the glory of the God who made him. And that awakens within him a zealous passion for God's glory. Towards the end of the psalm, you will have heard how these words, and at first they seem somewhat jarring and out of sync with the rest of the psalm, but let me read them to you again and help explain where they're coming from. In verse 19, he says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Suddenly you feel like there's a kind of screeching change of direction in the psalm from his sort of warm, mushy contemplations on being known and loved by God to this kind of zeal, anger even, that expresses itself as hatred towards those who are opposed to God. And that seems to us to be almost a contradiction, I think. Until you understand where this passion emerges from within the heart of David. And really what this is, is the contemplation of the glory of God. As I've been stressing, David is living a God-centered life. He's building the altar of worship in his own heart as he contemplates the reality of God and who he is in the face of God. And that causes him to gasp in awe and wonder at various moments as he contemplates God's reality. Look at verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. And then again in verse 17, he says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Here's a man who, in a sense, is losing himself in the contemplation of the greatness and the worthiness and the beauty of the God who has made him. And that, my friends, is true worship. We so often fail to worship by the Spirit and in truth because our thoughts and our meditations and our contemplations are all about ourselves. And you can never be a worshiper when you only think about yourself, your accomplishments or your problems your hopes or your fears. It's not that these things aren't to be thought about, but you see how it is through contemplation of the greatness of God that David suddenly finds himself overwhelmed, like he's been thrown into a deep ocean with no handhold. He doesn't know how to give expression to what he is feeling and seeing when he he reflects upon and meditates upon the greatness of God. And it's through that posture of worship, therefore, that his life is now turned outwards to the glory of God. Instead of being a man who is living in pursuit of his own glory and blowing his own trumpet and his achievements and so on, he is a man who is reflecting upon the greatness of the God who's made him. And this is what awakens within him zeal for the glory of God. That is sometimes expressed positively. Lord, how can I worship and serve you better? And here is expressed negatively. Lord, bring an end to those who are your detractors, who hate you, who lie and oppose you, and who are your enemies who take your name in vain. 
what I'm trying to help you to see, friends, is that this is a man whose heart is becoming healthier, though we would regard this as sickness. He's becoming healthier because God is taking the rightful place who is enthroned at the center of his existence. The glory is not the end of your life, but the glory of God. And here's one final thing. Your desires are not automatically good and pure, but must be refined by God. Now, in the absence of knowing a God who's made us, we, in our desire to search around for direction, purpose, and meaning, and structure to life, our self-obsessed age has put, as the king and queen of the throne of our hearts, has put desire and freedom upon those thrones. And therefore, to live a meaningful, fulfilled life in our day and age is to follow your desires and to live in the, the most free expression of yourself that you can possibly live. But clearly, you take those thoughts to their logical end. You discover that it's going to lead us into all kinds of mess, the mess that we see all around us. Because your desires aren't always good. And our desires often conflict with one another. So me expressing my liberty and my freedom may well oppress you or vice versa. Therefore, desire and freedom are not benevolent rulers, but rather tyrants, causing us to hurt and destroy each other in our constant pursuit of selfishness. But man who lives before God as David does, who is living a God-conscious life, here's a man who's as I've said to you, he's reached the summit of human achievement and human power and human accomplishment. But there is no sense of entitlement in him, no sense of pride in him, no sense of self-righteousness in him. Instead, and I think this is the very thing that's lacking in so many of the rulers of our age, and really is true of our own hearts, instead, there is this humility and this willingness to be exposed before the watching eye of, of God. And so the psalm begins and ends with the searching gaze of God. He says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then in the last verse, he says, or verses, he invites God, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. In other words, put me on trial. Examine me and cross-examine me and look at the inclinations and motivations and desires of my heart, O oh Lord. Why? Because there is a humble longing within this man to surrender his desires to the leading of God in order that he might live an everlasting life. He says, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And friend, This psalm, therefore, offers extraordinary and profound affirmation and challenge to the world and the day and the age in which we live. It does, on the one hand, come alongside with comfort 
to tell us that we are loved and we're seen and we're known and we're special. All of these things need to be taken into the deepest part of us. But it also comes with this extraordinary challenge. You can never really believe those things until you repent of your self-centered life. Begin to live a life before the face of God. And therefore, the health and the life that David is experiencing flows out of his knowledge of God and the reality of being known by God. This is what it means to be a believer. Why did Christ come to earth that we might know God? Why did he breach the divide between us and the Father by dying for our sins so that we can be forgiven and cleansed of all our unrighteousness, so that we can know God and know him truly, so that we can be intimately related with him and so that we can place God at the center of our lives. No longer living lives that are all about me, but a life that lived in reference to him. And friend, if you are someone who feels that you're turning around in circles or groping in the dark or walking through a fog or in a cloud of confusion in your day-to-day life, the invitation of this psalm is come back to God. Come to him maybe for the first time if you don't know him. Or even if you're a believer who has wandered away, as David so wonderfully describes here, taking the wings of the morning, dwelling in the uttermost parts of the sea. Know that God is in pursuit of you and wants you to find your health and your life and your dignity and your sense of who you are in reference to and in relationship to him. It may well be the case that there are those here who want to return to the Lord today. You're aware that you've been wandering away from him and you feel lost. You feel the anxiety of living. And my invitation is come back to him now. Come to him in your heart. If you would appreciate prayer, I'll be here at the end. I would love to pray with you. But let's bow our heads now, shall we? And let's turn to God in prayer now.